for it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Welcome back to Short Hops and Tall Tales, a pitcher list podcast highlighting the weird, funny, and bizarre elements of baseball that make America's pastime special. Uh, joining me once again is uh, the amazing Brandon Riddle uh, here for an extra, extra special episode. Uh, Brandon, why is it why is it special? Or <laughs> well, it's very special, and I'll say nobody nobody is more excited for this episode than Noah because we are all about knuckleballs today. It's a yes. dessert, if you will, of your Thanksgiving dinner, if you just had it. <laughs> ah, yeah, yeah, no, this has been a, uh, I feel like uh, an episode in the works for a while now, because I feel like we also just, we get an idea for something, and we're like, oh, let's do a whole thing about this, and then that kind of just gets put on a list, and then... Then the yeah, list collects cobwebs, and yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The list just gets longer and longer, because there's so many <laughs> great aspects of baseball that we want to cover, but yeah, episode 29, uh, all about knuckleballs so knuckle if you're balls. sitting there uh you know maybe you are very familiar with knuckleballs and in that case like welcome uh one if, of us yes yeah <laughs> yeah right um you might have an idea of what you're in for uh, if not uh we're gonna give you some background on the history of the pitch uh and some of the uh most famous faces to have uh you know become successful the, the most the famous knuckles if you will in baseball yeah the uh the knuckleheads um, so we're going to get into that, a very brief history of knuckleballing. Uh, then we're going to get back into, uh, I mean, personally, I think this is probably my favorite segment that we do, Brandon, but back into the pickle jar. Love the pickle um, jar. Thanks, Courtney. <laughs> and then, uh, behind every great knuckleball pitcher, of course, is an exasperated, battered knuckleball <laughs> catcher. Um, <laughs> well, hopefully so, not behind them. Hopefully they're in front of the pitcher. Hopefully in front of them or they're looking for the ball somewhere. There so we go. Brandon is going to talk all about uh, the catchers out there. Um, and then we're going to finish things off with uh, Wade Boggs's knuckleball adventure. Um, so, yes, Wade Boggs of Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Fame. I was okay. I was going to wonder how long can we go without mentioning R.I.P. Apparently he played baseball <laughs> at some point, I, I guess. Um, so we're going to beat that joke into the ground. Um, but yeah, just to start, I feel like uh, such a big part of baseball history and, and and especially knuckleball history is just the mystique, the air around knuckleballs. Um, so for those of you that don't know, uh, knuckleballs are notorious for being one of the hardest pitches to predict uh, in terms of where it's going. Uh, and as a result, one of the hardest pitches to hit. Uh, and and there, hit and throw like it's it's incredibly yeah. difficult to master if you can master that pitch at all. Yeah, of course. Um, so I wanted to instead of leading off with some pickoff trivia, just lead off with a quote here um, that I it cracks me up every time I read it. But it's it's uh, uh, by Charlie Lau, who is a catcher for the Tigers and the Orioles and later a coach. And he says there are two theories on hitting the knuckleball. Unfortunately, neither of them works. <laughs> um, that's just Love one in, in there's a, a great, a great, you know, a whole, whole bunch of great quotes. Uh, and I'll just read one more cause I don't want to step on if, I don't know if you have any quotes in, in yours, Brandon. Yeah, yeah I, I can always, I can always go for a couple of quotes. We'll see what, which one okay. you go with here. But, um, just, just so you can get a perspective. So the knuckleball, for those of you who don't know, uh, like I said, it's, it's, you can't predict the pitch because, uh, the nature of it. So it's supposed to be thrown with as little spin as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, that way. Uh, the air current and the wind uh, can act uh, 
on the pitch as it's in flight. And, uh, and, and if I may, according to a yeah. scientific journal, <clears throat> the zigzag path is obtained uh, by a lateral unsteady symmetry of flow surrounding the ball. So there we go. Yeah. Lateral unsteady symmetry of flow. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's exactly it. It's 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 the uneven, you know, air current hitting the ball uh, where you've got the, you know, the seams and it's rotating. And so it really can fly any which way. Uh, and so uh, kind of humorously, Jason Veritek, uh, a longtime Boston Red Sox catcher, had his own perspective on on the knuckleball. And he said, you know, catching the knuckleball, it's like trying to catch a fly with with a chopstick. So mm-hmm. even if you're the catcher here, you really have no idea where it's going. You're just kind of hoping for a general destination around your glove, right? Yeah, and since we're on you know quotes and catchers, uh, Bob Euchre has a great quote. You know, the best way to, to catch a knuckleball is to wait till it stops rolling and pick it up. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's probably the most famous, honestly, yeah. one of the more famous baseball quotes, period. Uh, Bob Euchre, of course, is one of the greatest um, just baseball people. Of, of all time. Yeah. Um, yeah. But anyway, so let's go into some of the history of the knuckleball um, talking with or not with. That'd be cool, though. Oh, that'd be uh, great. Yeah. With, yeah. With come, come on, Tom Candiotti. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. We're going to be talking about some of baseball's most notorious knuckleball pitches or pitchers. Uh, so the origins of the knuckleball, it's attributed uh, all the way back to Lou Morin of the turn of the century Pirates and Phillies in the 1900s uh, and Eddie Seacott of the infamous 1919 Chicago Black Sox. Um, is this where I put in the Stanley editor's note? Like, learn more. Uh, see short hops number 20. Um, yeah, but <laughs> I, I didn't know that about Lou Moore, and I, I had no idea about him. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah and it's so it's debated which which of those two pitches, uh, pitchers uh, mm-hmm. originally created the knuckleball, um, and who knows? They might have thrown it different grips, uh, but with all of that very, very early baseball history, it's there's there's a lot of hearsay involved shroud of the mythology so that's where it started and uh over the coming you know decades you know the young (laughs) i completely lost my my tongue there uh over the you know the following years the knuckleball enjoyed a very lengthy and colorful existence as this fringe pitch uh pretty much like i said since the earliest days of america's pastime you know, it's, it's become this relic of a bygone era, right? You know, because the knuckleball, it's not thrown 100 miles per hour. Uh, and honestly, if it were thrown at, you know, speed, there's a pretty fair likelihood that it would get demolished and, you know, sent oh, yeah. out to the center field bleachers, right? Um, no, so that's that's not how it works. No, the knuckleball is a pitch of finesse. It's a pitch of skill. And it's a pitch of honestly just pure dumb luck. It just floats to the plate. It's, it wobbles. It wavers. You know, its final destination is a mystery to both pitcher and batter alike. You know, not to mention, like Brandon's going to talk about the, the the scores of catchers that lie awake at night. You know, by the late <laughs> just seeing it in their nightmares. Right? Yeah, <laughs> like Rick Farrell, who we're going to talk about, I'm sure, had nightmares of of the knuckleball rotation. Um, a, another great quote: The great Willie Stargle once poignantly described the pitches throwing a knuckleball for a strike is like throwing a butterfly with hiccups across the street into your neighbor's mailbox. Good luck. You can't paint a better picture of what this pitch is than that. Uh, go on YouTube, uh, Google, you know, find a couple of these clips, and you'll see exactly and, why. And, and set aside doing. like an hour of your life because it is memorizing <laughs> to watch. It is beautiful oh, yeah. when it works, and it's beautiful to the other team when it doesn't work. So either way, yeah. you're in for a great time. It's- it's a true Hail Mary. It's a last resort pitch, and it's only ever turned to really once a pitcher has expended 
basically all of their other viable options. So as a result, you know, the careers of the pitchers that make up this exclusive fraternity of knuckleballers are is winding and, you know, capricious as the pitch that they stake their livelihoods on. Uh, but but that's really it, it's it's you get this really colorful cast of characters that we're going to dive into here, uh, starting with Hoyt Wilhelm. Uh, this is a very, you know, I mean, <laughs> he pitched uh, in from 1952 to 1972, one of the more prolific pitchers of his era. Um, and one of the few Hall of Famers to be uh, pr- primarily knuckleball pitchers. He's, uh, you know, was inducted in 1985 after pitching 21 seasons. Oh my goodness. Um, and that's the thing about the knuckleball is because it's not thrown at high speed. It's got le- much less wear and tear on the arms. So these knuckleball pitchers uh, that we're going to read, you know, talk about right here uh, had very lengthy careers because they were able to pitch deep into their 30s and even their 40s in some cases. So That's if you're a successful knuckleball pitcher as well. Oh yeah, it's it's basically you either pitch for 20 years or you pitch for two weeks, yep. uh, <laughs> <laughs> two games. Um, but yeah, Hoyt Wilhelm, uh, actually primarily a relief pitcher and one of the best relief pitchers of all time with 228 saves um, in his career. Now this is really interesting. So he did get by a lot of the times uh, time you know, really heavily relying on this knuckleball pitch. He did throw a couple other breaking balls, but it was really the knuckleball uh, that he staked his career on. Um, Now, so he's already been around the league for for a while at this point, but in 1959, his age 36 season, uh, he's playing for the Orioles, and they actually say, you know what, Hoyt, we're going to make you a starting pitcher for the first time in your career. He's 36 years old. <laughs> like I said, he came, he debuted in 52. So he's been around the block, you know, a few times he's, you know, he's a veteran at this point and that's not really something that ever happens. Mm-hmm. I can't, can you think of another time that that's happened even recently from a reliever to a starter at the age of 36 or even after the, the age of 30? Way. No, I, I can't. Oh yeah. Sorry. Uh, reliever way. to starter. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. No, because it's it's such a different skill set to go between those two. So at age 36 is just incredible. Yeah, so that's a heck of a thing to spring on a 36-year-old pitcher. (laughs) Uh, But Hoyt took it like a champ, right? So in 59, he actually pitched 226 innings with a 219 ERA and led the majors with a 173 adjusted ERA. That's uh, about 73% better than the average pitcher. Yeah, and that 2.19 also led the league as well in ERA. Yeah, yeah, he was a monster. And this is his first time ever starting. Now, Along with that, though, the Orioles catchers actually set a a major league record for passed balls in 1959. And the following season, Hoyt actually, despite having one of the best, you know, starting pitcher seasons, you know, for years, right? uh, They made him into a reliever again, just be, you know, I'm sure it wasn't solely because of the catchers losing balls. Oh, no. It's hilarious. Well, it's it's interesting because when you're that good, because that 2.19, that was like came throughout his career, basically. This guy's a Hall of Famer, not just for the longevity, but for how well he pitched. Yeah. Um, at that point, you know, the reliever and the closer, they weren't really established at the time. So if you get to the eighth inning, you can hand it off to Hoyt, who's going to end the game for you. It was basically a guaranteed win with Hoyt. So I, I get how Very that was real. valuable. Yeah, yeah. And that's another thing and a great point that when we have these discussions – a lot of times it's a completely different way of thinking, uh, you know, that managers are acting on. Uh, but anyway, that's Hoyt Wilhelm, one of the uh, one of the more interesting characters in this uh, this tale. But now we move on to Wilbur Wood, who, for my money, I like to think that he has had the greatest he's pitched the greatest 
individual season by a knuckleballer ever. Right, we'll get to it. that. Uh, but Wilbur Wood pitched from 61 to 78, 17 seasons in the major leagues, three-time All-Star, um, and really pitched at the height of the uh, knuckleball, like the golden age, if such a thing existed, from like 68 to 74. Uh, had back-to-back top three Cy Young finishes in 1971 and 72 with 11.7 and then wow. 10.7 wow. war, respectively. That's that's ridiculous. For those of you that don't really get a whole handle on how war works, just take for you know take our word that that's ridiculous. Um, and that's that's even after they lowered the mound. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, he actually averaged 350 innings pitched from 71 to 73. He didn't throw total 350. He averaged 350. Average. Or, or yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so it's how is your your arm not just raw meat at that no. point? <laughs> And that, that's just so valuable to a team to give 350 yeah. in, like really great innings. Well, and I'll, I'll get to how they did that. So, like I said, 1971, uh, I've, I've, I, I really think this is the greatest knuckleball season of all time. It was his first year as a starting pitcher. Um, but like I said, you know, that knuckleball less strain on your arm. So he was actually able to take a very ex- aggressive pitching schedule. And he actually alternated pitching every two to three days uh, rest, right? Uh, he went eight and four with a two ten ERA in fifteen starts on two days rest. Uh, 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 Unheard uh, of. You that's don't silly. Like today, today pitchers have f- five five to six days, like like at least with with how uh, how careful. And, and a, a lot of times when people see silly stats from like yeah. the nineteen fifties, whatever they go, those are video game numbers. But these aren't even video game numbers because you can't force your pitcher to go. Tuesdays on rest that much, even that the much computer, in the row. Even the computer says, "Hey, man, you got to ease up." This ain't real, uh, man. Yeah, but to eight and four, two ten ERA and fifteen starts, two days rest. But and then he has this great quote that they ask him during this time, and this is, mind you, during the seventies where you know pitchers pitched a lot. Yeah. You know, you know, players, you know, guys threw over three hundred innings, so it wasn't like you know it was it it was anyway. Uh, wasn't like today's Pampers pitchers. Exactly. exactly. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Back in my day. Um, but it's even then people are saying, Hey, are you like, all right, you're pitching so much. It shouldn't be possible. And he says, yeah, you know, well, everything thinks I should be more tired, but, uh, I'm not. <laughs> so a, what a point Blake quote. I love just that. Just a stud, right? He threw seven complete games in September with three oh. shutouts, uh, ended up finishing the season top three in earned run average whip, uh, adjusted ERA, innings pitched, and shutouts. And his 191 ERA is number seven of all time uh, in pitchers who throw or in seasons with 300 or more innings pitched. Uh, and then his 189 adjusted ERA is number six of that group. So, like I said, I think this is truly the greatest knuckleball season ever. Okay, so he he goes 350 innings. He has an incredible ERA. He didn't win the Cy Young. Who did? In 1968. Um, oh, that's like, uh, 60. I yeah. thought that was 71. Oh, excuse me. 71. <laughs> uh, actually, I'm going to cut this out because I have it right in front of me. One sec. Um, I know it. I, d- I feel bad because I definitely know it because I've researched it. Wait. He has a song named after him. It's a kind of a disco song. Oh. Or early 70s. I feel bad because I definitely, this is one that I, I've, I definitely have. I, I know I've known at some point. Just just what is it? Vida Blue. Vida Blue. He has a disco song. It's not quite a disco song, um, but again, it's early seventies and it's all about Vida Blue. It's really great. It's actually an A side and the B yeah, side to that that's song. Right. 
Yeah. Uh, but really quick, his ERA was 1.82 and 312 innings pitch. So, okay, yeah. I get it. Monster. Still, not yeah. to take it, away from Wilbur. And and that's the thing about a lot of these knuckleball pitchers. It's hilarious. Is they, it's it's not like there haven't been monster knuckleballer seasons. It's just that a lot of the times other players are even better. Like you know, just Vita Blue. Uh, you've got uh, uh, when you know Wakefield is going strong. You had Pedro yeah. on the same team. Exactly, exactly. And we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Phil Necro right now, actually. So that moves us on to kind of our our third person on this quick little tour of, of the, the, you know, knuckleball hall of fame, I guess. Uh, so Phil Necro is the greatest knuckleballer of all time, nicknamed Nuxy. Uh, everyone calls him the grand poobah of the knuckleball fraternity, uh, which is a great title. Uh, hall of made it into the hall of fame in 1997 after pitching 24 seasons from 1964 to 1987. He pitched until he was old and gray. Like he pitched forever. Um, it's still young and spry. We're talking about old and gray. Twenty-four seasons. You could have had a child named him Phil Necro, and then he could have, you know, I don't know. He would have been eighteen at some point during Phil Necro's career. <laughs> I don't know. That, I, I don't know. Some odd, odd idea. Uh, anyway, so he was the greatest of all time, and it was one because of his consistency over just so many years, so many seasons and two, just of how, because of how prolific he was, how like many innings he was able to throw. He's fourth all time with uh, 5,404 innings pitched. Uh, he cleared 330 innings from 77 to 79. Uh, and he just, he was just a machine. He just pitched every time his name came up and he did it for two decades, two, two plus decades. Uh, and yeah, he wasn't always the top pitcher in the game. In fact, he actually had a couple ebbs and flows in his career oh, yeah. o- over the years, uh, which I actually think is really interesting how he kind of found and, and, and lost his effectiveness. And then uh, yeah, that's kind of the nature of the knuckleball. Uh, what I can talk about that a bit later on with Jim Bouton. Exactly. He goes in depth on ball four with it, but it will often leave you and you can't get it back for days, weeks and or years at a time feeling. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, but he, over the year, he's, he's just, he's the greatest knuckleball pitcher. He just, you know, he, he's got, he's one of 24 pitchers all time with 300 wins. Mm-hmm. He's got 318. He pitched a no hitter, uh, on August 5th and, uh, against San Diego in 1973. Like he's just done it all. Yeah. And to prove a point, cause when he was coming up on the win 300, he kept hearing people saying, oh, you're, you're only here cause this is one freak pitch he can do. So he got it in his head that for his 300th victory, he's not going to throw a single knuckleball. I don't think he threw a knuckleball until like the seventh inning of his 300th win. So That's for right. seven plus innings, no knuckleballs, just to prove a point that he well, still can do it. Can you imagine going against a guy who's thrown 300, you know, about to win 300, his 300th game, throwing knuckleballs, and he just doesn't throw a knuckleball for the first seven it innings? It would mess with your head so bad. That would have broken me mentally. Like I would have been up there just sweet. Here's, here's it going to be. Here's it going to. Oh no. It's a fastball yeah. at 81. Dang it. Yeah. And it probably looked like 95. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So Phil Necro, uh, just the greatest knuckleballer of all time. And, and just real quick career highlight, 1974, uh, quietly one of the best knuckleball seasons ever, uh, happened to be overshadowed, uh, over, <laughs> overshadowed by Henry Aaron's uh, home run chase. Uh, Once again, 1974, they're both playing in Atlanta on the same team. 
however, Necro actually did throw 300.1 innings, went 20 and 13 with a 231 ERA, uh, almost got eight war, uh, and actually threw seven complete games from September uh, 2nd to October 2nd, including two shutouts and one of the best uh, Septembers for a pitcher ever, uh, lowering his career or his his ERA on the season from 270 to 238. <laughs> um, he was just a monster. And and it, what was even better is that, you know, these knuckleballers, they're not, you know, I'm they're, they're definitely athletes for sure. Like, don't ever, you know, think otherwise, but they don't always look necessarily the the part right mm-hmm. like they look like like everyone um you know and phil necro is out here about to win his 300th game uh you know with gray hair you know he's got a bit of a paunch like like and it's 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 awesome you know it's a show that anyone can really find success in baseball uh, and that you don't have to throw 100 miles an hour right you don't have to be you know have that wipeout slider coming out of the bullpen right you can just throw it up there at, you know, 65, 70, 70 ish miles an hour and get guys to swing through it. And, and that's the dream of everyone who may have played baseball at some point in their life. And oh, yeah. they think, you know what, if I can get a knuckleball down, I bet you I can keep playing a little bit. No, of course yeah. you can't throw a knuckleball, but you have that thought. It's, it's the dream pitch to extend your career or that potentially was, be great at something. And that's, that's why I love knuckleballs was like, I was always playing around with knuckleballs. Like, oh yeah. Ever since, you know, everyone did it in Little League, but I became like when I pitched in like high school, like I like my last two se- yeah, junior and senior year, I pretty much only threw knuckleballs. Because- Excellent. And, and here's here's the thing is there's a common misconception that people only throw knuckleballs or similar breaking pitches when they can't throw hard. No, it's false. I threw knuckleballs because I couldn't throw accurately. <laughs> and I could throw a knuckleball and it was 50-50 it was going to drop in the zone no matter if my Just like just like your fastball. Not. Yeah, you know the the fastball was really just one that I I'd throw up there and and people would be oh, that was weird. Uh yeah, so that you know, it's just fun though, you know, cuz you get to go up there and and it's like you're playing wiffle ball. And right? and, and really quick cuz we're on the subject, I, I'm curious how you threw your knuckleballs. So we call them knuckleballs, but you don't actually throw them with your right. knuckles. So I threw my knuckleball. I feel like I got to grab. Oh, there's a baseball right in front of me. Um, so I threw my knuckleball a really weird way, or at least not the way that, uh, you know, R.A. That, Dickey. That Hoyt would tell you how to do? Yeah, yeah. It's not the traditional way that, that uh, you know, the Necro brothers uh, gripped their knuckleball. And that's just because my hands are not. I mean, my hands are fairly large, but I don't but know. But they're, just, they're just not. the way yeah. that works for me, right? Um, but anyway, so how you typically throw a knuckleball. Um, this is going to be difficult to explain a pitch grip on a podcast, but I'm going to go for I it. I believe in you. Um, so you take two, your, 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 uh, your index and your middle finger, right? And you dig them in hard um, under the horseshoe of the seam on the baseball. And then what you want to do is you want to uh, actually, when your arm is coming around, you want to lead with your elbow and just kind of let your arm uh, just kind of whip through and whip forward and you're not trying like you're not throwing it hard right um, you're just kind of letting it letting the energy kind of flow through you I, I, <laughs> Ooh, I like it like some kind of zen action here but that's really what it is you're just kind of surrendering throwing a knuckleball it's all about surrendering control and it's all about you know like it's trusting the baseball gods that your yeah. pitch will land where the bat ain't 
and I don't know, maybe I'm just a degenerate and like to gamble with pitches, but that's, yeah. But the way I threw it was I actually, it just worked better for me, maybe because my nails weren't great or whatever, because yeah, gotta have good nails and I bit mine. Um, But you dig in, I would actually dig in all four of my fingers and I just brace it under with the the thumb. And then I would kind of throw it with a little, a little bit of, of speed just to get it there. Um, And that way it would, it would get some some when it would break it would break a little sharper uh when i would you know but but still it's it's still mm-hmm. a lot of just letting it happen and just trying to get in because that's what you want is when you you dig your nails in here and they kind of pop up off of the baseball a little bit you want an even release on the knuckleball yeah so that it's coming off with no spin yeah right? and, and that's, that's the ideal knuckleball is no spin whatsoever mm-hmm. and it's just you know on the at the whims of nature and those nails are very important because a lot of times you heard like Ari Dickey would go on, would skip a few starts if he had like a hangnail, if his nails weren't quite right. They had to be perfectly manicured yeah, in order yeah. to get that pitch going. Yeah, and that's something I actually started reading his, his book uh, not too long ago. But he goes into detail about, you know, just his nail routine and, you know, always keeping a file on him. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, you know, some possibly unscrupulous pitchers maybe in the past might have used a similar nail file to deface baseballs and scuff them up to get more movement. Um, you, you know, but we don't have to talk about that, but yeah, if, if you saw some material on a knuckleballs baseball, they'd probably say, take it off of me. <laughs> it's uh, it's yeah. Knuckleballs go hand in hand with, you know, not, it's not cheating. It's fudging the rules a little bit. You know, you just gotta <laughs> just a little bit, of, a little bit of razzle dazzle. Um, right. But anyway, so back to finish off, uh, you know, what was supposed to be a brief history. Of oh, please. That wasn't going to happen. Um, R.A. Dickey. Uh, we just uh, dropped his name uh, moving on from Phil Necro. So R.A. Dickey uh, is the most recently highly successful, more or less knuckleballer. Highly right? successful. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I actually, I would totally call him highly successful. I want to Cy Young, sorry, so yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, spoiler alert, but yeah. Oh, come but anyway, on. Anyway, <laughs> Ari Dickey, super cool guy, uh, pitched from 2001 to 2017, 15 seasons, highly touted prospect coming up, but actually fell through the rankings uh, after it was discovered upon a physical that he just didn't have a, uh, a UCL. Hmm. So that's, that's not not something that yeah, inspires a lot of trust you're going to have a bad training. time without a ucl <laughs> yeah Typically. and for those of you that don't know what a ucl is that's like the main ligament involved so when you whenever you hear a pitcher gets tommy john surgery it's to repair that that ucl that ligament um so it sucks and it's a heartbreaking story to read and to hear him tell it but he had like a great signing bonus from the rangers and then he went in to do his physical before, you know, signing on the dotted line. And they kind of called him back in. They're like, hey, dude, like, what's going on with your arm? And he's he had never had any pain, right? And it had never stopped him from being, you know, from pitching well. Mm-hmm. But he just didn't have a UCL. <laughs> it's weird, man. Knuckleballers. Odd. Uh, so then he got his signing bonus with Slash because he was now like a, a health Ouch. risk, right? Uh, which is just horrible because, you know, it just... It sucks. It's a heartbreaker. Yeah. Uh, and he ended up trudging through the minors for a couple of years before finally debuting uh, with the Texas Rangers. Uh, and so early in his career, he was one of those b- borderline bubble players, very up and down. And he really turned to the knuckleball, as many did, as a Hail Mary uh, play to kind of stay in the league. Uh, but what Dickey did differently from traditional knuckleball pitchers is that his knuckleball, it, he threw it. It was different, right? 
Uh, he threw it much harder than his predecessors. He actually dialed it up to the high 70s, low 80s at points, uh, where most knuckleballs sit between 60 to 70 miles per hour, typically. Uh, now, this was counterintuitive counterintuitive uh, to the prevailing understanding of the pitch that more velocity you know leads to diminished movement as the ball floats to the plate but it worked for dicky so in 2012 in his age 37 season his third year with the mets uh, ra dicky uh pretty much just explodes right he was he was everywhere uh, he led the national league in strikeouts with 230 um, he finished with a 273 ERA uh, in 233.2 innings pitched, which was second in the majors, only to Justin Verlander. Um, and it really was this this underdog story of this 37-year-old uh, experiencing a career renaissance on the back of this this wild knuckleball. Uh, although, to be fair, how you know how. Uh, you know, Dickey actually threw kind of three variations on his knuckleball. He had a harder one. Uh, he had some with more movement. Uh, so it wasn't like the same thing. And that's the other thing. No knuckleball is the same as another knuckleball. No. They're all pretty much random pitches, uh, more or less. Uh, and so he, uh, but yeah, he he mixed up his speeds and and he actually started missing bats. And you know, knuckleballers typically don't strike out a lot of players. Uh, it's it's pitching to weak contact, getting you know dinky ground balls or you know, little, you know, little floating pop little poppers. Right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, R.A. Dickey struck out 230 major league players. Love it. Um, love it. I love that you're so much watching him. It was a magical season. He actually led the National League with uh, five complete games and three shutouts, including back to back one hit performances <sighs> that were just a few feet in one case of being back to back no hitters on June and uh, June thirteenth and June eighteenth. You know when you have a stat like that, you know back to back one hitters and barely one hitters at that. Like uh, you know you're watching s- some kind of special season. Yeah, and it, it's just it was it was one of those seasons where I just I don't know it's 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 so it's rare when a player does something in a way that is so different, so unorthodox that it just confounds mm-hmm. all of, all of us people who put our hats on and think like we know everything about how sports work. Right. Um, you know, it's just, just seeing a guy go up there and get major league players to just look silly against a, a ball, barely touching 80 miles an hour. Yeah. Something uh, that belongs in the 1920s. Yeah. And then all the, you know, everyone's trying to analyze it and it's like, no, it's just no, art. No, like, it's, it's just, <laughs> it's just physics. You, you just, can't, you, it's physics. Yeah. Don't worry. <laughs> it's, it's just one of those things that makes baseball special, right? Is that every once in mm-hmm. a while, something completely stupid and unprecedented happens and it's it's beautiful like that is one of that was one of my favorite seasons um and so as a result uh at the end of it r.a dickey captured everyone's attention and finished first in nl cy young voting um becoming the first and only cy young uh or knuckleball pitcher to win a cy young award which is kind of wild to think about considering some of the pitchers we've named uh specifically necro and necro is a surprising one yeah Right. Yeah. Um, you know, some some might say that Clayton Kershaw maybe deserves the Cy Young a little more, had a better season, but I will never take it away from a knuckleball pitcher. I, I will. I I am perfectly happy that R.A. Dickey <laughs> um, locked that up because it was special. And, you know, it's and, and you know, it, it was one of those things that it didn't happen. You know, it hasn't happened again. You know, it's nothing against R.A., but he just it was a lightning in a bottle season. And I'm happy that it was commemorated. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, and, and that knuckleballers got a chance to to be in the limelight. 
Um, so of course that was, those were just four of, of many, many names. Uh, I'm just going to briefly rattle off some honorable mentions so people don't get mad in our comments. A uh, shout out to Ted Lyons. Of course, uh, Brandon mentioned him, Tom Candiotti, the candy uh, man, Roger Wolf, Dutch Leonard, a uh, great name. And of course, Tim Wakefield for, if any of those names are, uh, you know, for uh, you haven't heard before, Google them, go on YouTube. Although now I'm thinking about three of those names, not going to be on YouTube because they're from like the 20s. Uh, but Google <laughs> them anyway. Uh, anyway, we will be right back with more short hops and tall tales after this quick word from our sponsors. Hey, Alex Fast here, and thanks for listening to this podcast on the Pitcher List Podcast Network. If you're a fan, consider supporting all of us by getting a PL Plus subscription, where you're going to get an ad-free website and get access to our Discord, where you can talk to all of our podcast hosts and staff. Plus, you can hang out with our incredible Pitcher List community. It's basically a baseball sanctuary year-round for as low as $8 a month. You can sign up at PitcherList.com backslash plus, and you're going to get your first month free with promo code podcast also don't forget to check out everything else we do as well from youtube videos live streams newsletters off-season articles tiktoks breakdowns over 15 baseball podcasts on our network we can't stop talking about baseball even during the off-season so sign up for pl plus today at pitcherlist.com backslash plus and use promo code podcast to get your first month free all right thanks for listening let's get back to the show all right we're we're back, uh, Brandon. Um, it's it's time for the pickle jar. It's pickle jar time. <laughs> so of course, this is a segment where we talk about weird baseball terminology, what it means, and where it comes from. Uh, so for this um, pickle jar, we're sticking with the pitcher theme, and we're going with submarine pitchers. So what is a submarine pitcher? What does it mean? And what do people think it means that have no idea what it was like yeah. not really fans of baseball. Yeah. And I, and I kind of, I kind of like this submarine uh, kind of theme because it's, it's kind of like tangentially related to knuckleballers in the sense that, you know, a lot of submarine pitchers kind of do it, you know, just to, you know, to stick around. It's something funky, something mm-hmm. unorthodox. It's different that pit batters aren't used to. So suddenly you're seeing something completely new, throwing your eye off and it's difficult exactly. to adjust to. It's like it's like the cousin of the knuckleball is the. I'm good with that. Yeah, it's like right? it's like the cousin of the knuckleball. Yeah, a little more common. Um, yeah, yeah, a little more common, uh, especially today. But anyway, so I asked my good friend Simon, uh, who uh, you know, what's a submarine player, and he said that's a, a player who's only on the roster for depth and isn't expected to ever play. I really love the play on depth in submarines. Yeah, so that's solid. Star for a Simon. plus. Um, I'm going to edit in some applause. <laughs> All right. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, Brandon, what is a submarine pitcher? Yeah. So, submarine pitcher, it's a style of pitching uh, where they release the ball below the waist and just above the ground. And that, of course, results in unorthodox and deceptive perspective for the hitters. And, and so, it's difficult to pick up and they get lost swings and misses, hopefully. Um, and it just allows them to add some unique spin to the pitches. Yeah. Hopefully being the, <laughs> the hopefully being term. good. Uh, who's who's one submarine pitcher that pops in your mind when you first think about it? Um, it's just immediately it's Taylor Rogers, the pitcher for the San Francisco Giants. Okay. Although, um, I think Kazuhis Makita, 
who played for the Padres a couple years ago. Uh, wasn't overwhelmingly successful, mm-hmm. but go on YouTube. I implore you, uh, if you know, go on YouTube and and Google Google this guy and his his hand. It it pretty much it literally is it like three centimeters off. Grazes, it grazes, yeah, it grazes the, the mound. It is one of the most impressive and and like enthralling physical movements I've ever seen <laughs> on, on a baseball field. Yeah, right. It's it's like you could watch it over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, w- I wouldn't be a Diamondbacks fan if I didn't mention our greatest closer, except for two innings of all time, Young Young Kim, who was also a seven yeah. pitcher. <laughs> yeah, but great yeah isn't that wild though he was so like like he's so good you know as a submariner and it, it's just wild that that that's i i i'm sorry this is just i i'm kind of you know just reiterating this is what i love about baseball it's that you can do something so differently and really be yourself out there mm-hmm. and find success you can have style out there yeah. And I, I kind of want to point out as well, I, I tried to look for the origin of submarine, thinking it goes back to like the 40s or 30s. The earliest uh, mention of it I found was 1894. No way. 1894 from the Centralia Enterprise and Tribune newspaper. Cool. Wow. <laughs> but they were talking about a pitcher named Ad Liskin, who was a submariner who gave up a grand slam to uh, Johnny Moore. So, well, sure. That is really interesting because. I so I I actually thought it might have been even more recent than your guess of like the 40s, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but interesting that all the way back in 1894 they're using this term because it wasn't long before that that they were actually throwing underhanded, right? Like delivering. Yeah, underhanded um, 1874 is when the rules changed from underhand to overhand. Yeah, and and really the first I guess I'm thinking the submarine crap itself popped up during the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I guess we would have always had the word submarine since it's just a common word. But yeah, no, that's yeah, just yeah. ten years after you know it finally began to be allowed overhand. You got the first um, mention of submarine pitcher. Yeah, it is interesting. Yeah. Words are cool. <laughs> yeah, words are fun. <laughs> but uh, just before we we move on from submarine pitchers, so I mentioned Taylor Rogers, who uh, was uh, he pitched a great season in 2021 for the Giants out of the bullpen at a 2.22 ERA, uh, key part of the Giants stretch run. It's really good against everybody but the Dodgers. Um, <laughs> but what was really interesting is a little bit ga- bit of gamesmanship on Rogers' part. So Rogers would wear. Uh, bright white shoes now pitchers uh have some uniform rules right so like a pitcher cannot have like i think bracelets on his delivery arm Mm -hmm. um he can't have a white sleeve or anything like white like a you know a bracelet or or or, you know anything on on that arm uh so as to not uh you know uh you know kind of underhandedly fool the batter right right might distract them for example it could be dangerous as well Exactly. Yeah, because you need to see the ball coming. Now, there are no rules, uh, you know, no, you know, base color rules like that for cleats. Uh, Now, so what Taylor Rogers does is, like I said, go see his YouTube and you you can see this happen live. Uh, So he would wear these bright white uh, spikes. uh, And when he would come down to throw, it kind of looked like the ball was coming out of his shoes uh, <laughs> because batters are looking for this, this blurry white well, blur. Uh, and you've got his, you've got to look at, you've got the rubber there. You've got the spikes, you've got the ball and it made him that much more deceptive mm-hmm. as a pitcher. And honestly, like I'll, I'll tip my hat to that because he's finding, 
he's finding a loophole essentially and i think it's hilarious is it something that mlb should probably amend yeah probably (laughs) maybe but you know rules are only made when somebody exceeds too far like okay now we gotta make a change because this isn't right (laughs) yeah so you know i thought i just thought that was kind of an interesting tidbit uh to kind of kind of get a window in on the just the competitiveness of these these players sounded like a little Uh, bit of a salty note on your part I'm not, I'm not, hey, we got the last <laughs> laugh. And actually, this will, this will tie in with my, my uh, personal memory. Uh, I saw the game where Taylor Rogers gave up a walk up, walk off. Oh, of that's Will right. Smith this year. That's so uh, right. I have nothing against him and his, his funny, his funny shoes. Uh, I do think, I do think Submariners are cool and even cooler that uh, a little bit of, <laughs> this should have been the, the pickle jar adjacent. Uh, but I've heard Submariners referred to as poo slingers. Um, poo slingers, okay. <laughs> yeah, from I guess just like the angle, and because they throw low velocity most I of the time. I think the ultimate pitcher would be a uh, submarine knuckleballer. Oh, that would be impossible! But yeah, ultimate pitcher. Really That's a video game pitcher right there. <laughs> yep. Um, and then he throws 100 miles an hour because why not? But anyway, uh, back to knuckleballers, and you can't have a great knuckleball pitcher without somebody behind the plate taking shots for him. Um, <laughs> so we're going to talk about knuckleball catchers. Uh, Brandon, what do you got for us? You know what? That's exactly right. Someone behind the plate and not even a volunteer behind the plate, somebody that wants to be there. Because most of the time, these catchers catching the knuckleballers, they do not want to be behind the plate. They're out of their own element too, just like the batter is. They're using a different glove. They have a different pitch coming. Everything is different about this position now. Uh, so they're not terribly, six, not nearly as successful as they typically are, we'll say. Uh, so with every knuckleballer, you have a knuckleball catcher. Uh, some catchers specialized in these knuckleballers. Uh, some were just fortunate enough to be in a position to catch a lot of knuckleballers. Uh, so the first one I want to talk about um, is Rick Farrell, who's I'm sure Noah will tell us about here shortly. Uh, but <laughs> So he was born in 1905, and you're born at that time to be a baseball player. You're going to be tough. You're going to be even tougher when you're a catcher, and even more tough when you're catching knuckleballers. In fact, this guy, wait for it, was so tough, he paid for college by boxing. <laughs> so wow. he would go out to the gym, box for money, and pay for college that way while playing baseball. Another classic baseball player story from the, the 1900s. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm sure... They have some great stories in there if we can ever dig them up. Uh, so he eventually got drafted and played Major League Baseball. And from 1926 through 1928, he was hitting, hitting over 330. But he was playing in the minors and wasn't called up by Detroit. Uh, four, four seasons, this guy's hitting over 330. He's not being called up. So he's thinking something's up. So he goes to, goes to baseball commissioner Judge Landis and claimed he was being illegally held back. And that way he, he wouldn't, you know, be owed the money. And turns out this wasn't terribly uncommon. So Landis looked at his details and he agreed and he granted Farrell free agency. And almost immediately, Farrell signed with the St. Louis Browns for $25,000, which at the time was one of the largest sums to be signed for. So, you know, it it, it pays to... Stand up for yourself there. Good for him. Yeah. And of course, he got that money and gave it to his dad to pay off the farm. <laughs> and, and that's a pretty big win because we've, you know, we talk a little bit about player rights as, you know, in these stories. Mm-hmm. And that in the sense that they had none. 
<laughs> yeah, no, it was easy so for the owners is, to collude. Yeah. So just like it yeah, did with Feral here, they held it, it, it back. Yeah, yeah, and so Feral, like that's actually a very you know major you know win you know not only in his career but that's that's pretty huge for baseball in general. Yeah. Um. So yeah, he he does get into the league and becomes a great catcher. In fact, he becomes a Hall of Famer throughout his career. Uh, but we're going to kind of focus on just two seasons, 1944 and his 1945 season. Why is that, Noah? Um, I don't know. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. So 1944 and 1945 uh, were two seasons. He actually played for the Washington Senators uh, and he caught what I contend to uh, is the most interesting baseball rotation of all time of all time of all time and so what's what was interesting about the 44 45 senators you may ask uh the fact that it was led by four knuckleballers uh and you're gonna hear a couple names that i actually just uh dropped in our honorable mentions a couple minutes ago but uh it's led by dutch leonard uh roger wolf mickey hefner and uh johnny niggling so really just like like four like and so for context, uh, what was going on in the world in 1944 and 1945, obviously nothing much. Yeah. Pretty, pretty quiet. <laughs> right. Uh, world war two. Right. Uh, and so baseball was really the talent pool was devastated by, uh, many of its best players, Ted Williams, most notably going off and joining the war effort. Uh, and so baseball kind of took a dive in quality around the, the, this time. Uh, of course there's still professional players, but they were missing a lot of the stars of the era, right? Bob Feller being another. Ted Williams, um, yeah. Yeah. And so uh, these teams were really looking to experiment and find drastic ways to shore up talent in the meantime. And one of these ways uh, or one of these experiments was the 1945 Washington Senators, who over time had assembled the only pitching rotation made up exclusively of knuckleball pitchers uh and poor rick farrell uh happened to be stuck behind the plate for those seasons and uh just because we don't have a ton of time to get into the whole thing (laughs) and i'd actually talk about it so uh we we, i go into this so this was one of the first articles i actually ever wrote for pitcher list and if we're being honest is my favorite article i've ever written um and, and it's about this season uh rick farrell dutch leonard all of these characters and it goes into detail but uh just to keep things short and sweet here uh the experiment worked uh at least for a time and the team actually uh they're in playoff contention until the final day of the season when hank greenberg uh crushed their their playoff run and crushed their spirits with a uh, a huge grand slam uh, which uh, you know lifted the Tigers into the playoffs and subsequently uh, knocked out uh, or you know got rid the subsequently uh, you know eliminated the Senators who had the day off and were kind of you know watching their fate play out. Over uh, hate to see it happen. Yeah, but it really was this great uh, underdog story uh, from a rotation cobbled together on an idea. Right? It was like if the Avengers. Um, I don't know if the Avengers were made from a bunch of old. What, where are you going with this one? <laughs> I don't know. We're, the analogy's not good. 
Um, but it's it's really great, and it's 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 a great uh, you know little little you know corner of baseball history that I really enjoy. Um, but yeah, Rick Farrell actually, uh, who I believe came over with Dutch Leonard, uh, if I remember off the top of my head correctly, uh, because he had become a you know was known for being a knuckleball catcher, mm-hmm. um, and so he was ta- uh, you know tapped as the the man for the job in Washington, and to his credit he did a a great job with what, what he was given, right? I, I, he led the league in pass balls, but he was an all-star. Uh, he really, he, he, he led the, that, that, that rotation. He absolutely did. And, and they almost pulled it off. They almost got to the, to the single the game. Thanks, Hank Greenberg. <laughs> yeah. You know, but, uh, yeah, please, please, uh, I'll, I'll end my self plug there. Um, uh, just with, you know, the note that, uh, if you're interested Check out that article because it yeah. goes way more into detail and it's way more interesting than anything I can get into right now. Yeah, uh, it's the first article yeah. of yours I read and I loved it. So I, I knew when I mentioned Rick Farrell and it, the 1945 team, Noah was going to go off. Let, let him have yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, I'm a, I'm a big Rick Farrell guy. Uh, I, I just love those those players that uh, I, I love catchers just in general, like the the wise men of the, the, the you know, I think is the, the stereotype, right? <laughs> Uh, and I just can't imagine the amount of patience this man had to have. Uh, and, and that's the thing that that's also a good note uh, too, is that as much as knuckleball pitchers turn to the pitch to kind of, you know, revitalize their career, it's also a way for, for some catchers to extend their, their careers uh, and in, shorten in their body. lives. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Extend yeah. your career and shorten your life. Catch a knuckleballer. Shorten your, your, your career at the same span. Uh, because, you know, you'll get a knuckleball pitcher. And if you're the only guy that can really if you can become a knuckleball whisperer of sorts, um, you know, sometimes when a team will trade for a pitcher, they'll they'll they need that catcher, too. Right. It's kind of like a, a two for deal. Um, so, yeah, so it, it can also actually help to extend catchers careers as well. Becoming a knuckleball specialist. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, but it's it's out there if you if you, you're trying to stick around the league. But anyway. Enough from uh, me. Uh, and, and so that's that's Rick Farrell. Loved it. Yeah, so Rick Farrell, Hall of Famer. Um, up next, we're going to talk about knuckleball catcher Gus Triandos. So Gus Triandos is another one of those big, tough catchers. And in fact, uh, sabermetric guru Bill James uh, once said of Gus that if he had been called up earlier in his career, he could have hit four or 500 home runs. So he wow. was a big mammoth catcher, six foot three, 215 pounds. And in his first professional season in the minors, hit 368. So this was a big, big hunk of, hunk of guy. Uh, so he, he played the kick, of course, catcher throughout his career, did well. And then in the middle of Gus's career, um, after he had already earned two all star appearances, Baltimore decided to try the experiment that Noah mentioned earlier in this podcast, starting Hoyt Wilhelm the 36-year-old knuckleballer. <laughs> and to this point, he'd only started 10 games in his entire career. So like we already mentioned, huge experiment. Uh, and Gus was up to the task. He figured he's a big frame. He can probably knock down any ball that comes his way, which, okay, makes sense. Um, in their second start together, Hoyt goes nine innings against the Red Sox and gave up two runs. Um, Gus had three pass balls and two home runs. So that kind of perfectly <laughs> encapsulates both of them. That's fine. Go the distance, give up a couple runs, pass a couple balls, hit a few home runs. 
And I'm I, I just pulled up uh I, I just pulled up Gus on Google Images while you're reading that story. Yeah, this dude was massive, and he wasn't just big for he was he was like 1965 big. Yeah, you know? like he was 60s big. Like he is like a muscular. It's it's like big imagine guy. big bad Leroy Brown, and then it's now scary. there's Gus next to him, the same size. Yeah, I no wonder. Yeah, no wonder he can he can stop baseballs. This dude is a is a mm-hmm. beast. There's also a quote about Gus Triandos uh, in The Wire. Um, so I don't remember off the top of my head. So just Google The Wire and Gus Triandos, and you'll see something vaguely not safe for workish. So just enjoy that. Um, so at the end of the year, they did well. Hoyt, of course, finished up with a two point one nine ERA, and Gus did Gus things and hit twenty five home runs while catching a knuckleballer. So, successful year for both of them. Um, another catcher. Oh, you see that quote? <laughs> um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not- looking it up right now, actually. <laughs> okay. Uh, while you do that, we'll go on to another catcher who called Knuckleballer, Bob Uecker. Oh. Oh. Yeah, I read oh. it. Okay. <laughs> oh, there's the quote. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Probably can't repeat oh. that one here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I don't need Nick Pollock uh, getting on the horn. <laughs> <laughs> So, Bob Euchre. Uh, of course, Euchre had a, had a career as a catcher, technically. Um, he was a five-year veteran uh, when the Atlanta Braves traded for him in 1967, specifically to catch Phil Necro. Um, I'm not sure why specifically to catch Phil Necro, but there we go. Uh, so, in half a season with the club, uh, he allowed 25 pass balls and retired right after the season. <laughs> he, he had enough after the knuckleball. I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> That's, and, that's, uh, and, and, and also gave us that amazing quote, too, that, that defines... The best something. way to catch a knuckleball is wait for it to stop rolling yeah. and pick it up. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, finally, the last one to talk about very briefly is Jerry McNerty. Um, he had the privilege of catching for two great uh, knuckleballers. Uh, of course, Hoyt Wilhelm, because if you're a catcher of the 60s and 70s, you would have caught Hoyt Wilhelm at least once or twice. And then he was the catcher for the 1969 Seattle Pilots uh, when Jim Bouton was pitching, of course, a knuckleballer from the book Ball Four. Wow. Um, and Bouton like, heaps praise on McNerdy in the book saying it's a shame that he was left off the All-Star team that year. So, hey, high praise. Honestly, yeah, these these catchers should uh, – I know there is the I – think, I think knuckleball catchers should have get, – get some kind of consideration when, when Gold Glove – season comes around just, except just because, their gold glove would be like three times the size of a normal gold glove yeah. award yeah because <laughs> the size yeah, of the mitt had to be so much you. bigger and in fact a couple of pitchers i think it was uh rick and gus they were given uh as actually sorry uh, it was mcnerty i apologize now mcnerty um he was given a specialized glove to catch a knuckleball that was considerably larger uh, so he had two for knuckleballs one was really big one was slightly smaller but somehow the ball nestled into the glove a little bit easier so he had, in fact, two gloves for knuckleballers. All right. So, yeah, every knuckleball pitcher is going to have a catcher. Uh, there are obviously dozens and dozens of catchers we didn't mention at all. These just some kind of yeah. picked out that had some kind of fun stories behind them. Um, and now we have a batter that apparently threw a knuckleball. <laughs> What's going on there? You know, knuckleball, knuckleball is really... Uh, uh, if nothing else, I, at the end of this this conversation, I hope we've articulated that they're just one of those those aspects of baseball that just kind of sparks curiosity, right? It really grips our attention. Um, mm-hmm. And everyone at some point in their life who's stepped on a baseball field has tried to throw some kind of wonky. Hundred percent. If you're doing, if you're on the line, yeah. just warming up with your buddy, I'm gonna throw a yeah, knuckleball to him, see if he guys. notices. Exactly. 
Um, and so, of course, naturally, the, these competitions spring out uh, between you know teammates of who has the best knuckleball on the team, um, and, and and stuff like that. But uh, <laughs> very very rarely does this uh, do these conversations actually ever get a chance to uh, kind of get air on an actual uh, in a live batting situation on a baseball diamond. Uh, but this actually did happen uh, once uh, all the way back in 1997, and it happened to Wade Boggs. Uh, so little known fact, actually, before becoming a joke on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, Wade Boggs was actually once a very good baseball player. <laughs> you might not know this. Um, some might actually even say he was a Hall of Fame third baseman. Oh, um, <laughs> Yeah, so uh, he's a he's a twelve time All Star. Uh, he uh, won two Gold Gloves, five batting five titles. batting titles. He was just and 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 he this was just him just smashing the ball off the green monster, right? Um, and after a very storied career, he actually did finally secure a World Series uh, championship in nineteen ninety six with the dreaded Yankees. Uh, and that was the other thing. He actually went after becoming a legend in Boston, immediately switched sides and went to New York because I don't just, know. I just think that's so funny to me. <laughs> Got to get yours, man. <laughs> right. Um, so he had a very, very storied resume uh, by the time uh, August 19th, 1997 rolled around. Uh, however, to this point, he still had not pitched an MLB inning. And this was something that just ate at Mr. Boggs inside. Uh, so for years, uh, Wade had needled his managers, really just begging them to get a chance to just pitch even in a blowout, right? Uh, because little did they know he had a secret weapon up his sleeve. He had a knuckle bar that he, a knuckle bar. Ooh, that sounds delicious. A knuckle ball <laughs> that he had sharpened through decades of spring trainings and pregame warmups, right? And it had actually achieved this kind of like legendary underground status in clubhouses uh, between Love players. That. You know, like it was this storied thing that was only spoken of in whispers, right? Um, <laughs> um, in the dugout. Wait, box, knuckle ball. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so Wade and the people around him were just dying to just watch him unleash it in a live game. So enter August 19th, 1997, a day that would go down in infamy. The Yankees are getting blown out by the Angels. Excellent. Good day. Yep. Actually, I take it back. This is a great day. The Yankees are getting blown out by the Angels. It's 12-4. There's nothing wrong here at all. Exactly. Uh, and so New York actually faced a doubleheader the following day, and they'd already really heavily taxed their bullpen enough as it was. Uh, so they just decided to throw in the towel, uh, wave the white flag, and just throw a position player out there to absorb the you know the final few outs of the ball game. Now Joe Torre, uh, the you know legendary Yankees manager at the time, initially called upon his infielder Charlie Hayes to just go out there and pretty much take up punishment, right? Uh-huh. Um, until a group of Yankees players actually yes. protested and they said, you know, Joe, no, we need to see, we need to put, put Wade Boggs out there. And and this isn't early in Wade Boggs's career. This is 1997, where it's it's he's a veteran. He's 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 a surefire Hall of Famer at this point, and you don't. That's not really something you do if you're a manager. You don't throw your Hall of Fame like no. legendary, uh, you know, um, unless there's a mutiny on your hands and you have no other choice. So thank <laughs> you, Yankees. Yeah, and so the Yankees players protested enough to get Tory to to take you know to just say, okay, you know what, 
go out there, Wade. And before the words are even out of his mouth, you just see Wade Boggs, you know, sprinting out to the bullpen. Yes. And mind you, uh, this is, I feel like a broken record. This is something that is on YouTube. Uh, so I highly encourage you to, to watch this uh, after this, you finish this episode because it's hilarious. It's really, really funny. Um, so you just see Wade Boggs just running up the sideline, right? And he goes in the bullpen and he's throwing his warm up pitches and he looks like, you know, he's, he's trying to look like a pitcher. Uh, and everyone's <laughs> watching him. Everyone's just locked in on the Everyone bullpen. knows what's about to happen. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so when he trots out to start in the bottom of the eighth inning, the entire New York Yankee bullpen is like locked against the fence watching uh, from, from the outfield. It's great. Like, like seriously, watch this video. Um, so Wade Boggs gets to the mound and in steps uh, Luis Alicia to face him. And Boggs uncorks his first pitch. It's this floating, twisting, just gorgeous knuckleball. And he actually gets a check swing and a called first strike. He had uh, Alicia bamboozled. Like bamboozled, this man I say. Lost. Yeah. Like, like you'll see it on 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 the, the replay. Like, he really check swing, breaks his whole, you know, wrist. And, and it's a called strike anyway. Uh, and so then Boggs throws another knuckleball and then another and then another. <laughs> and he eventually walks Alicia on a full count after just missing with a knuckler outside. So runner on first base, no outs. Uh, who cares? It's 12-4. Uh, next up is Tim Salmon, uh, the second best uh, Angels player with a fish for a last name. <laughs> um, and he gets to uh, an 0-2 count. And he's got two strikes on him. Uh, before Boggs actually gets him to roll over and induce a ground out to shortstop, uh, they're just a little too slow to turn a double play. So w- one out, uh, and they've got uh, you know the Angels legend Garrett Anderson. Garrett Anderson. Plate. This is a great nostalgia trip. Too. Yeah, it, it is. Tim Salmon, Garrett Anderson, uh, and Anderson takes a knuckleball out of the zone uh, before uh, you know just grounding out to second base, and he actually moved uh, Tim Salmon uh, over from first base. So now we've got two outs. A runner on second and in steps the catcher Todd Green and Wade Boggs is working um, and he gets him to two strikes and then he he rears back and he just lets loose with this gorgeous, magnificent, uh, just floating butterfly of a knuckleball that all Green can do is just just, you know, this weak late swing through the zone. And he just the whole time you can see it in Green's face. He's just he's just <laughs> embarrassing. Like, <laughs> I can't let Bog strike me out. It's like, it's like wiffle ball. And he just, the minute he swings, he knows he's done too. And you just kind of see his body language just kind of slump. And he's like, well, that just happened on national television. <laughs> uh, but it's okay. You're up 12 4. Uh, so Boggs had done it. He had thrown a scoreless Major League Baseball inning. And he actually topped it off by getting a strikeout. And what's wild is that he had done it almost entirely with his knuckleball. He pitched 17, he, he threw 17 pitches and 16 were knuckleballs with one Beautiful. fastball. I, I, I submit to you, Noah, that this was the single greatest moment in Yankees history. This was yeah. it. Yeah, no, you're right. Mm-hmm. No, I, I don't yeah. even think it's close. It's it's like no? this and then and like, like- a called shot somewhere deep below shot. second. Sorry, Lou Gehrig. It's it's way yeah Boggs, no it's, it's Wade Boggs from a knuckleball. Uh, yeah, the, the the flip is way down there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I honestly, but this is really one of the like like just one of those funny little 
little nuggets of baseball history yeah. that I just I just love. You know, of course, a Hall of Fame third baseman goes up there, you know, in in Yankees, you know, and, and throws a, a knuckleball inning and gets through it without giving up a run. You know, a, another segment that we put down on the segment list to do and get to in like a year from now is position players who pitched or greatest moments in blowout history. Ooh, that's a good one. That's mm-hmm. a good one. Well, uh, we definitely be have to be sure to include this one. Um, but yeah, so that in a nutshell is knuckleballs. Uh, I think we covered uh, a pretty good range. Uh, wouldn't you say, Brandon? Yeah, we put on a pretty good length this episode, which we knew was going to happen when the topic was about knuckleballs. Like, okay, this is going to be a very long episode. Let's do it. I got it out of my system. Now we can we can move on. <laughs> and we never have to mention knuckleballs again until again. next episode. <laughs> right. All right. Well, uh, we will uh, see you for the next episode uh, in two weeks on uh, next Thursday. Uh, but until then, uh, please be sure to follow along with Short Hops and Tall Tales on Twitter at Short Hops PL. Follow Brandon at BD Riddle and myself at Noah A. Scott 6. Uh, also, uh, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave a review if you like. Uh, and then for Brandon Riddle, I'm Noah Scott, and this has been the Short Hops and Tall Tales podcast. See you next time. Gobble, gobble. <laughs>